Good morning. Good to be back with you. It's been a long time, at least in this setting. It's always a joy to come and and just be in your fellowship and to sing these songs wholeheartedly with you. At the cost of my voice, maybe. (laughs) But it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no greater joy for us than to worship you. And that joy amplified, multiplied in the presence of your people, in the presence of your saints. What an incredible realization it is for us that not only do we sing together of your glories in this room, but we join in with a multitude of voices with believers all over the world and saints that have come home to be with you and angels as we all sing of your praises. We long for that day that the church sins no more. And we will sing that loudly with great joy and great emphasis on your mercy and grace. We long for that day. And we rejoice in this day the day that you have made, would you please help us to be glad in it? And as we continue our worship now in your word, we ask that you would, you with your Holy Spirit, guide us now to listen to your word preached, to put ourselves under your authority, for you are our master and worthy king. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The subject of sin is passé in a lot of Christian circles. Passé meaning out of style. It's not not really talked about as much as it used to be talked about. And maybe, perhaps it's an overcorrection from going from one end of talking only about sin and missing the point of grace to now never talking about sin because it just doesn't feel right. The Babylon Bee is a is a website of really hilarious brothers and sisters in Christ who write satirical news articles that are they're really funny. <laughs> this one is the the headline is Pastor Packs Sermon with Record Setting 78 Euphemisms for Sin. <laughs> and so it starts out by talking about how in his previous record was 28 substitutes for the term of sin. And they write This is a joke, by the way. This is not real. Snyder's message, titled Breathing Life into Our Brokenness, opened with a short video clip from Rocky III. (laughs) But as Sylvester Stallone's powerful voice faded out, Snyder was out of the blocks at a lightning-quick pace and well on his way to a world record. Quote, Jesus died for your hurts, habits, and hang-ups, for your failures and foibles, for your oops-a-daisies and your boo-boos he reportedly declared before refreshing himself with a sip of his beverage stationed at the foot of his lectern. And you know, the Hebrew scriptures suggest to us that we all might have had moral oversights, bounced spiritual checks, and bashful blunders. So we sometimes don't quite live up to our God-given potential. That's right in the book of Romans. (laughs) No one actually said that. It's a joke. It's satire. But one of the things that Babylon B is just so incredibly good at is they make you laugh at ourselves as the body of Christ, but they also bring to our attention some really serious truths. You walk away and you're like, ouch, man, that is, that is incredibly true, how we've, how we've gone away from this subject of sin because we live now in a society that values self-esteem and self-worth and positive thinking so much that we would rather stay away from this concept of sin, and substitute instead things that are more palatable, not so hard to listen to. We would rather not hear about sin and more hear about grace. But that's faulty thinking, brethren. It's faulty because if you truly want to enjoy grace and mercy, if you want to truly understand 
God's love for us, you must understand sin. You need to pursue a knowledge and understanding of what sin is because when you understand sin, you understand God's mercy and grace in a deeper and richer way. Back in 2009, and this is, this is a notable year for me because that's when I, I was introduced to the doctrines of grace and started being challenged in that way. It was at the Resolved Conference in Palm Springs and the whole conference with these young adults, college-age kids, the theme was sin. And you know what was strange about that conference was that though the theme was sin, we would walk out of that room every single day with joyful hearts and crying out to God with, with enjoyment and pleasure after talking about sin. Because then you talk about the grace of God. Would you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4? Last week, Pastor Travis walked you all through the fall of man. Somber in many ways. Somber because here we have mankind falling away from God. And yet at this, and, and cursed by him. And but at the same time, receiving this promise, this, this first gospel, that the serpent would bruise his heel, the seed of the woman, but he would crush his head. And so we have this, this tension last week of, of this grief over the fall of man and yet rejoicing in God's steadfast love in Genesis 3.16. And now as we go into chapter 4, we have this, this similar ongoing theme of of sin and, and God's mercy. And, and we're going to see the effects of chapter 3 going into chapter 4. The effects on this broken world, this spiritual deadness that is gripping humanity. And so on one hand, that's a bummer. On the other hand, it seems like as Moses is writing this, that he is repeatedly emphasizing the mercy of God on these sinners. And so as we go through this chapter, we are going to be focusing really on on two themes as we go along, and that is grieving over sin and rejoicing over God's mercy. Grieving over sin and rejoicing in God's mercy. And we'll see that in three different ways in chapter 4. We're going to be doing chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. But for now, we'll explore this first way that we see this in the passage, and that is, Man's selfishness and God's selflessness. That's number one. If you're making notes, there'll be three. The first one is that God's, I'm sorry, man's selfishness and God's selflessness. Rather than read the passage all the way through, what we'll do is we'll read them in three different chunks once we get to each point. So let's read first of all, starting in verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering... He had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So we see right off the bat in this story, as the story continues, right from the end of chapter 3 going into this one. Now man is cursed, there is a fall, there is a chasm between God and man, and yet God, in his mercy, doesn't abandon them. He still gives them Cain. She conceives and she bears a son. In other words, your line continues. Now, this phrase here, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, 
There are some who read that. I have gotten a man, the Lord. And the Hebrew allows for that. I have gotten a man, the Lord. And, and what they would say is, in saying that, what Eve is saying is, is, my son is essentially the seed that was being talked about here. It is a hope, an understanding of this first gospel in chapter 3 going into this one. Now, maybe, maybe not as far as that goes. But even if that's the case, and first of all, the promise never contains anything for us to see here so far in Genesis 1 through 3 so far that the seed of the woman would end up being God himself. We don't see that earlier, and so it would be questionable whether she would know that. But even if that's what she thought, sadly, she was mistaken when it comes to Cain. The man that she thought, the son that she thought, would end up being a man of God in his service, perhaps the seed that was foretold in chapter 3 would in fact become an enemy of God. In any case, the narrative continues in verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In other words, Abel is a shepherd, Cain is a farmer. That is their vocation. And by the way, just as a side note, it's, it's evidence so far that with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, that with every single one of them, they were here for something. God has something for each of us to do. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. One time, Pastor Travis posted in a Facebook group that we have asking this question, why do you think, he probably said y'all, why do y'all think that Abel's sacrifice was received and Cain's was not. And, you know, we have your, your, your answer that you come up with right away because that's what somebody told you before, but he challenged us saying, well, where does, it, where does it say that? Well, frankly, the text itself doesn't necessarily explicitly say why Cain's was no good and Abel's was good, but we can give our best guess. And... So, we can guess, first of all, that Cain's wasn't done in faith. When you think about Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says something along the lines of, By faith, Abel's sacrifice, Abel was, uh, let's just go there. Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Either way, listen closely. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The emphasis there is by faith. And so we could say that Abel's sacrifice was done in faith, and Cain's was not. And when we talk about faith, we're not talking about does Cain believe that God is? He knows that God is. But there's a difference between believing that God is one, because the demons believe that too, and they tremble, and there's a difference between that and actually having a a saving faith in God, in Yahweh, one that submits to him and desires to follow him in all of his ways because he knows that he is good and he knows that he is just and righteous. And it seems that Cain is missing that element. And we see that also in the rest of the passage. But notice also in verse 4, in Genesis 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. So it says that he brings the firstborn. He brings the best. He doesn't bring the leftovers. And yet it doesn't say that about Cain's offering. All it says is that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And so it's possible that Cain's offering was not done with the right heart either. Where Abel would, would bring his firstborn, maybe 
Cain would just grab whatever's there, whatever's convenient, whatever he might not need for the next harvest, perhaps. And as a side note, that's an important note for us. As we consider how we worship the Lord, specifically how we worship the Lord in our giving. In this sense, our offering him, our, he doesn't need our money, but if, if we are going to offer our financial blessings that he has given us, well, that ought to be from our first fruits. It shouldn't be whatever happens to be left in the budget. It needs to be offering to him our best, our first, rather than just giving him what happens to be left. The Lord does not want our leftovers. He wants the firstborn of our flock. He wants our first fruits. And it doesn't only apply in the matter of money. It applies to every single aspect of our lives. So whatever the case, that's our best guess. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Cain and his offering, he had no regard. We have to understand that the Father is an arbitrary. He doesn't just arbitrarily give his favor and his rejection. He is just, he has reasons, and he accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's. So where do we see his selfishness? Well, in verse 5, Cain's selfishness, that is, Cain was very angry and his face fell. What we don't see in Cain is, oh wow, uh, my sacrifice was not accepted by the Lord. What could have been in my heart that caused that? Or what could have been wrong with that sacrifice that could have caused that? Maybe I should go to Abel and ask for his counsel and see why his sacrifice was accepted by the Lord and not mine. But we don't see that at all. What we see is, He's angry. Literally, he's incensed. He is inflamed. He is seething. This is not like a, one of those things that just bothers you and it's just nagging at you. He is incensed. And his face fell like a dark and gloomy disposition. And then in verse 6, where we've seen Cain's selfishness, we see God's selflessness. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. If God were not selfless, then he may very well have just left Cain in his brooding, left him alone. And that's one of the worst things that could happen to us would be for God to leave us alone. Because if he abandoned us to our own utilities and to our own decision-making and thoughts without guidance, we would self-destruct. Which is why the value of the word is so amazing. Because apart from his counsel, we would self-destruct. And so we see God expressing his selflessness in where we have Cain here, this little complainer and murderer in his heart already, though he had not committed the act, yet God would condescend to go and give him counsel. Notice the counseling there. It isn't simply rebuke. The Lord sees fit to, to encourage him and to exhort him, to admonish him. Look, if you would do well, Cain, won't you be accepted? If you don't do well, watch out, Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. Sin desires to take over you, to, to rule over you. And this ties back to chapter 3. And her, your desire shall be for your husband. To rule over you. To lord over you. And he warns him of that. How gracious is God that he would warn Cain of that, though he would know in his foreknowledge what's about to happen but you must rule over it. So how does that apply to us as we think about that? We think about man's selfishness, God's selflessness. We start here in selfishness, and that should grieve us to the core. 
If chapter 1 and chapter 2 is about paradise, chapter 3 and chapter 4 is about paradise lost. And how sad that is for us to read where God created everything and God created everything good. The tempter came in and he tempted Eve and Adam and they ate of the fruit and now everything's just off. We're feeling this tension that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And that's just in Genesis 4. What about our lives today? This should remind us that the world is in a way that it's not supposed to be. That sin is destructive. That we can see so many of the consequences of the, of the nastiness of sin in this world and in our lives too. It's easy to, to look at this text and say, Oh, Cain, oh, Cain, you are so selfish. Would that you were more like me. But instead, it causes us to think and say, wow, you know, I am like this a lot. I am so selfish. Selfishness is at the root of destroyed relationships. Whether it's your coworkers, yeah, your two coworkers are, are against each other, it's because both of them are being selfish toward one another. Or let's take closer to home, uh, marriage. The reason why there are marital problems is because we have a hard time with selfishness. The way that marriage is designed to be by God is that man and wife are selflessly fulfilling one another so that there is a mutual fulfillment. And yet that's not what happens. I'm not even married and I see that in a court sh- or, uh, uh, engagement. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Where... where I am just like, I'm upset because, because I, I'm not getting my way and she's upset because I'm upset and it's, it, that's not how it's supposed to be. What about church? The reason why there are problems between brothers and sisters in Christ is, is just that. It's a selfishness that we see in this world and this should, should grieve us to our core. And when we grieve sin, it's not just for the sake of grief. Not just so we would walk out here and say, man, yeah, I, I, am, I am terrible. But godly grief produces repentance. And when we grieve over sin and we understand sin for what it is, it should cause us to hate it and to work with whatever we can to strive toward Christ-likeness instead. And try to be who we are in Christ. That's what we see when we look at man's selfishness. And then, on the other hand, when we look at God's selflessness, that should fill us up with joy. That should fill us up with such a contentment in God because He has been so selfless toward us. We'll see that in a variety of ways in this passage. But if we focus on the fact that He counsels Cain, think about how amazing the Word of God is. Think about that not only did He send a Savior that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, that would have been incredibly gracious, incomparably gracious enough. And yet, he doesn't leave us to try to follow Jesus on our own utility, on our own opinion. I think that following Jesus would mean this. Well, I think the opposite of that. We're not left with that. He has been so kind to give us his word, to give us his counsel, to teach us more about himself in these pages and teach us more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. How amazing that that is, that he selflessly gives himself to us through that medium. And so we rejoice in him and we seek after that. So first, number one, we saw man's selfishness and God's selflessness. The second one we see in this passage is man's hatred and God's love. Man's hatred and God's love. Let's read verses 8 through... We'll go 8 through 22. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord says to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The, man, the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zalah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So again, we see man's hatred, God's love. Go back up to verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, we don't, in our text, we don't really know exactly what he said, but there are, there are some old manuscripts that are not the best manuscripts, but they do say that Cain said to his Abel, let us go into the field. It's possible that that's what he said. It's almost like that seems to be what's implied here. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, continuing in verse 8, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Killed him. This is the first murder that's recorded in Holy Scripture. That in and itself should just cause us to grieve sin to the heart. And, and sometimes when we think about Adam and Eve, and we're like, what's the big deal? Why is the punishment so severe? They just ate fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. Look at the consequence. Their son killed their other son as a result of their disobedience and rebellion of eating from the fruit of the tree that they were told not to touch. Their sin opened up this sin for this next terrible sin of murder. It seems here that this was not just like a crime of passion out in a field where they got into a heated argument and he choked him to death. And, and the reason why it doesn't seem that way is because imagine if there, there was no concept of murder before. And, and you're Cain, and, and in, your, in your anger, you, you well up and you kill him out of passion. But then, once he's dead, wouldn't you be like, oh my, oh my goodness, what have I done? The, the blood of my brother is on my hands. What, what have I done? And, and run over to your father and mother and say, Father, mother, I, I lost control. I killed my brother Abel. Please, plead to the Lord for me and ask for mercy for me. I am so sorry. We don't see any of that. Instead, we see quite the opposite. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? The Lord knows. The Lord knows where Abel is. The Lord knows what Cain has done. And yet, mercifully, he allows Cain the opportunity to repent, to, to say to him, like Adam and Eve did when they were confronted, to confess their sin and plead for mercy. And yet, that's not what Cain does. He says in the next part of verse 9, I do not know. The first lie, well, from a human, the first lie recorded in Scripture. Whereas Adam and Eve, when they sinned and God confronted them, they spilled. They spilled. They, they, yeah, I, we ate of the fruit. 
But when Cain is confronted, he has the audacity to say to God's face, I do not know. And then he continues, am I my brother's keeper? Now, that's just bad either. I mean, any way you go around asking that question, either it's a snarky comment like, why are you asking me? I never said I would keep watch of him. As if he has the right to say that to Almighty God, creator of the universe, king of all kings, lord of all lords, as if he had the right. Some even read this to say, am I my brother's keeper? As if to say, aren't you his brother, my brother's keeper? Don't, shouldn't you know? where he's at? That's quite possible. Either way, we see Cain's hatred not only for his brother, but we see his animosity and hatred toward God. And the Lord said, verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Again, he's not surprised here, but now he's letting Cain know, I know what you did. What have you done? Your brother's blood is on the ground and it is testifying to me that you murdered him. Verse 11, and here's his judgment. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to you to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This curse on the ground is really a double curse because you remember that the ground was already cursed because of Adam and Eve's transgression. But now it would be cursed on top of that for Cain. And remember, his livelihood is farming. So this is a fitting punishment for what he does and what he has set his passion on. Verse 12. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. In other words, it's not going to, be, it's not going to produce for you anymore. Going on verse 12, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now that is, is a merciful sentence, given what the offense was, the first murder ever. And yet, listen to Cain here. Cain does not, in a love for God, say, my Lord, please do not do this for me. Please do not cast me from your presence. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Renew in me a, a clean heart. Please don't do this. I can't live without you. Where will I go? For you have the words of life. Wouldn't that be great if Cain said that? But no. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Could you imagine for a moment a murderer standing in front of a judge, and the judge pronounces the sentence, and the, the criminal tries to switch places with the judge. Just let me get up there for a second. You have been unfair to me. This is not a fair punishment. This is beyond... This doesn't, I mean, this is way beyond my sin, my transgression. That he would even have the audacity to say that. So rather than be penitent and show some sort of remorse and ask and plead for forgiveness and faith in God's mercy and grace, he complains about his punishment. This is a sad story. And yet, verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Wow. Wow. This is, when we just look at the mercy and the grace of God, the Lord could have said, well, them's the breaks, pal. You broke the law. And yet he commits to protect him. From vengeance. Now, mind you, it would have been wrong for anyone else to kill Cain. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he granted no one that authority at this point to take life for life. And so there would be vengeance on them sevenfold. In other words, severely, if anyone would dare to kill Cain. The Lord dispensed the judgment. He sets the punishment. No one else had the right to do so. So he puts a mark on Cain. 
Don't really know what that mark is. But whatever it is, it would be clear to Cain and to whoever who saw him the circumstances of his situation. By the way, we could ask here, who is he afraid of? Because it seems like in the narrative, it's just Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. Well, that's another one of those things where we can just take our best guess. And the best guesses are either he's, I mean, remember they lived for hundreds of years, which would allow for a lot of time for other descendants to be coming up that had just not yet been mentioned here. Or it could be that Cain knows that they're going to continue to have descendants and he's going to live for a long time. So when these descendants grow up and learn about Abel's death, maybe they'll take revenge on his behalf. In any case, God in his love decides to protect him. But wait, there's more. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He goes away from the presence of the Lord without so much as an asking for pardon or mercy. Please don't do this. Please don't send me away. It's almost like, okay, goodbye. He goes away from his presence. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that, that God isn't everywhere. He is. He is everywhere. Yet he goes away from God's presence in the sense of fellowship, in the sense of this particular conversation that he's having. And he settles in the land of Nod, which means wandering, which ties with his punishment that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer. But notice where he settles, east of Eden. You know what's east of Eden? Angels guarding the garden with a flaming sword. That It's almost as if he settles there to almost be defiant to the terrors of God. And yet, verse 17, Cain knew his wife, likely another of Adam and Eve's children, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So again, more mercy, more grace from God, that they would allow their line to continue, and more hatred from Cain. And this is an inference, so test it. But he said he built a city. His punishment is to be a wanderer. His punishment is to be a fugitive. And yet he builds a city. He sticks his roots in as if to challenge God's judgment on him. You don't, if you're a wanderer, you build tents. If you're waiting to go into the promised land, you, you, you build a tabernacle as you go. And if you're someone who's hoping that one day God would have mercy on you and welcome him back into the fold, you don't build a city. And that's exactly what he does. And he names it after Enoch, a different Enoch that you might be thinking of. And to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adabar Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. So here we have Lamech, and Lamech has kids, and one of them is Jabal. And Jabal is, is famous for being a good shepherd, of dwelling in tents and having livestock. So he, he is famous for that. He is good at it, which speaks more to God's mercy that he would allow common grace for anyone to be good at things, to have skill, to be in his image to be able to be one who has tents and livestock. Then you have brother number two, Jubal, the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Famous musician, great musician, common grace from God that he would give them the gift of music and the skills to play music. And then the third brother, Tubal-Cain, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Good with metal, good with his hands, good at building things. We see God's mercy all over the place here, that not only would he allow them to have descendants, but that his descendants would be pretty talented people. And yet we see the hatred of man toward God even here, because we don't hear about these men, and his brother's name was Jubal, and he was a righteous man and followed the way of the Lord. Or, or Tubal-Cain, who was the first of Cain's descendants to turn back to Yahweh. No. All we have of these brothers is that they were really good at worldly things. 
They, they love the things of this world. They were committed to, dedicated to, perfecting this earthly life to the best of their ability. And we even see that in the fact that he names Tubal-Cain's sister Naamah, which means beautiful one. There's an emphasis on the things that are going on here on earth. As we progress through this story, we see here the hatred of man, both for fellow man and toward God, and we see God's love toward man. And again, we could say, man, Cain is just, he is just unbelievable that Cain would talk to God in this way, that he would react in such a fashion. How awful it is that he would kill his brother like that. But we have to remember that but by the grace of God, we are like Cain. We would do exactly what he would do in that situation, but by the grace of God. And even though we haven't killed anybody, we've murdered them in our hearts. As the Savior says, if you hate your brother, you've murdered them in your heart. And even though we haven't had this direct, audible conversation with God where he gives us our punishment and we challenge it, we do that all the time. We, we challenge our lot. We don't like what God has given us. So we see this, this, this practical hatred toward man and where we have this animosity and bitterness and anger towards our fellow man. And this happens even in the church. There might be some conflicts even in this room today that have been unsettled, untouched, brooding, party against party, animosity building and growing up in them and not addressing it with one another, practically hating one another. That should grieve us to our core. And that should cause us to not just be in grief, but to do something about it, to make war against our heart's proclivity to hate other people rather than love on them. And then when it comes to our lot, when we complain against God and, and he gives us our certain lots in our lives and we have this both selfishness for the earlier part and this hatred toward other people where we look at other people who seem to have a better life than we do and we hate that. We won't say that. We won't say, I hate that person. But in our hearts, we're like, why them? Why do they get blessing and I don't? I'm the Christian, they're not. Why is it that they would be blessed, but me not? God, that's not fair. That's our tendency, isn't it? That is, our, that is what our, our natural, selfish proclivity leans us toward. And that should cause us to look to his mercy. And we see his mercy again. We see his love in the fact that he lavishes Cain and the Cainites with many blessings. Maybe not salvific blessings, but plenty blessings here on earth that they would have that they would have the skills, that they would be allowed to build a city, that they would be protected, that they would be able to continue on their lines, that they'd be able to enjoy marriage, even though Lamech perverts that, which we'll see later. So as we examine the hatred of man and the love of God, may we strive against hatred and pursue his love. Thirdly, number three, man's pridefulness and God's humility. Man's pridefulness, God's humility. We'll pick it up in verse 23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So here we have Lamech, the descendant of Cain, and now he has married two people. This is the first perversion in Scripture of God's holy institute of marriage. He decides to have two, which in and of itself is an incredible hubris, an incredible pride in him that he would, before the presence of God, say, I'm taking two wives. And again, their names, Adah and Zalah, they, they mean words that really speak to 
this earth, this beauty here. And he says to them, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I have to say. Maybe to intimidate them, perhaps. And here's what his message is for his two wives. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He's boasting about that. He's boasting about the fact that he's killed a man for wounding him, a young man for striking him or or offending him. And that word there, young man, that, that phrase speaks to the fact that this is probably somebody much younger and much weaker than him. And he kills him just for striking him. And he wants his wives to know that. I'm capable of this kind of thing. And he goes on to say, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now this could, mean, this could mean one of two things. It could mean that he is confident in the protection that Cain has gotten, that if he murders and keeps murdering people, that, that he's going to be protected as well. Or, in his pridefulness, he might think that he thinks so highly of himself that he has no need for protection. He is, he is strong enough to handle that. So we see here the, the pride of man as this next theme of just sinfulness in this world that should cause us to grieve over the fact that there is this sin in this world. And yet, yet, and we won't go into this deeply because this is where Pastor Travis will pick up next week. And yet, verse 25 Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As we're reading chapter 4, it's like this is getting bad. This is getting worse and worse. This is bad news. Where is the promise of God? And it's right there. That is, that is for us as we think about God's humility that rather than say, you know what, forget what I promised to you guys. In his humility would continue his plan of redemption. Despite Cain, despite Lamech, despite all of that, he would continue in his plan of redemption. And for us, we all struggle with this sin of pride. We may not say the words that Lamech has said, but we sometimes carry his attitude, whether that is, is feeling self, uh, self, what's the word we're looking for? You're able to, to do everything on your own, lost the word, or what is it? Self-sufficient, which my vocabulary is not self-sufficient. <laughs> Whether we're feeling self-sufficient or whether we're feeling we have no need for God, we may not actually think that or say that, but we act practically in ways like that. Like, for example, when we forget to pray. And we're, we're in situations where we only pray once it gets to that final point where you're like, I don't know what else to do. Rather than leaning on him our entire lives with everything that we have in our lives And we struggle with these things. So whether it's selfishness or whether it's hatred or whether it's pride, all of these are welling up and reminding us that, oh my goodness, we need a Savior. And so as we look at what he will do in verses 25 and 26 onward through Revelation and the end of that book, we are examining God's redemptive plan that he has not let humanity go, that he has not let any of us go. That for all of we who, have been, who had been going in our sinful way, nonstop, full speed ahead, away from God, in our selfishness, our hatred of Him, and in our pridefulness, yet He says, you, I'm going to save you. And he, and he grants you life. And He gives you faith to believe that if you trust in Jesus for your salvation, you will be saved. That is incredible. Because these are sins that we struggle with and this is certainly not comprehensive. We look at sin. We look at the gravity of sin. We look at the consequences of sin, both in Scripture and in our lives. And that should cause us to grieve 
and it should cause us to strive after holiness. And then we look at the mercy of God. We look at the grace of God and we look at what he has done for sinners like you and me. And we are emboldened by that. We, we worship God because of that. We sing awesome songs like we did today because of that. And we lean on him as our savior and our hope. So brothers and sisters, we must take sin seriously. We can't minimize it. They're not foibles. They're not little mistakes. They are insults toward the face of God, countless multitude of them for which the Savior died and from which he saved sinners like us. And so we rejoice in that and we will as we sing. But first, let's pray. We have seen your salvation, O King. And we are forever in your debt, forever worshiping you, forever serving you as our Master and Lord. It is so striking to consider our sin and to see it set next to your faithfulness and your mercy toward us. And we ask that we wouldn't take that for granted. Would you help us, please, to always be aware where we have fallen short, where we have sinned against you, where we have transgressed against your law, not so that we can be under the law, but that we can, by your grace, freely repent of them and obey you with worshipful hearts. Oh, Lord, we can't do that on our own. In fact, left to our own devices without your Holy Spirit, we wouldn't. So we ask that you would strike in us afresh the seriousness of sin and the amazingness of your mercy. We worship you now in our hearts and in song. In Christ's name we pray.